Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Tim Johnson of Tim Johnson Gallery. Tim is an Orvis-endorsed guide at Falcons Legend, Utah, but you probably know him better as the man behind the Timmy Grip, those beautiful custom woodburn cork grips that you see on a lot of Orvis rides. We discuss how he got into fly fishing and guiding and the creative process behind his art. Before we move on to the interview, though, I want to take care of a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend and leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps us out. And I also want to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. The event will be held on March 21st and 22nd in Plano, Texas. And if you visit www.txflyfishingfestival.org or our events page, you can get all the latest information. Now, on to the interview. Well, Tim, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you, Marvin. It's a pleasure to to be here telephonically. <laughs> Absolutely. I really enjoyed meeting you in Denver in October at IFTD, and I've, I've been looking forward to this interview for for quite a while. And one of the things that we um, we have as a tradition on the Articulate Flies, I always ask uh, my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, um, my earliest fishing memory is probably... I'm not even sure where I was somewhere, probably in Northern Arizona. I grew up in, in the desert in Arizona and I remember being up in the mountains and, uh, trying to catch trout. And my mom knew nothing about fishing and she tried to help me catch trout as well. Um, but we just didn't know what we were doing and had like marshmallow bait. And, and I just remember being frustrated and that probably as much as anything made me just want to do it more and more. And so I can't remember a time since I was probably, you know, maybe four at that time that I didn't want to be fishing. So first time I remember catching fish was just a, like a, uh, municipal pond in Mesa, Arizona called Riverview Park. And I uh, caught some tiny, I mean, they must've been no more than three inches long bluegill. And that was my, my first time that I can remember actually catching fish. That's awesome. And when did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? Oh, so that, that's an interesting question. When I was, uh, you know, again, a kid, I was probably 12 or 13, my next door neighbor, moved out and the gentleman who moved in uh was divorced and so his son was with him every other weekend or so and and when one you know one weekend his son was there and i saw him on his lawn the son who's probably 16 uh, a guy named eric shoemaker and he was casting a fly rod on his lawn and i didn't i'd never seen fly fishing before i didn't know what it was but i knew it was fishing and i was like that's i don't know what that is but that's that's me that's what i'm going to be doing so i went over and totally just kind of you know like a strange awkward little kid forced myself in there and got him to teach me how to cast. And, uh, and he kind of brought me up and taught me the ways. That's awesome. And as you continued on your fly fishing journey, who are some of the folks that uh, mentored you? Well, uh, you know, Eric Shoemaker was the the first one. He, he got me into it and, uh, let me, let me use his rod to get started, which I actually lost in the Provo river. I hooked a, uh, a very big fish, almost drowned some of my waders and lost his rod. But, uh, so I have to give a lot of credit to him. And, and after that, when I, I came up to Utah for school and up there ran into a, you know, many, many more fly fishing. It was a rarity down in Arizona, but up in Utah, uh, quite a few more people. So guys like uh, one of my first and best fishing friends in Utah is Grant Bench. He goes by uh, the Fly Ninja on Instagram and Facebook. He's an amazing fly tire, amazing fisherman. He got me into uh, guiding more and, uh, and helped me really develop skills. All the, the guides out at Falcon's Ledge where I guide. Um, uh, some amazing skilled fly fishermen and fly tires. They helped me, you know, further, further develop 
um, and, and just kind of getting into the network of people here in the state of Utah who are, uh, who are very serious about it. Um, uh, you know, helped me learn a lot in the ways of, of tying, of fishing, finding new areas, new techniques, um, getting connected with the folks at Orvis has, has kind of expanded me into understanding fly fishing internationally more than I would have. So, I mean, there's, there's too many people to name, but, uh, but those are you know a few of the the connections that got me started into to really kind of expanding. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you remember when you got the guide bug and you're like, I want to be a fishing guide? Um, well, yeah. When I was uh, as soon as I started fly fishing, when I, I realized immediately that this is something that I was going to do. I mean, when I was standing on the lawn, you know, casting that fly rod, and and Eric telling me when I was improving and when I was regressing and thinking this is something I want to master. And then I, you know, wanted to know, well, who are experts at this? Who, who is the authority on fly fishing? Um, you know, this was really pre-internet. So you could read books. I, I mean, I was reading, you know, the Orvis guide and, you know, things by Tom Rosenbauer and whoever I could find. Um, but, you know, Eric told me, well, you know, you can get certified as a casting instructor by different places or really a fly fishing guide is a guy who does this every day and he would be the expert. And that's when I was like, oof. That's probably something I'm going to have to look into and get started on. Yeah, that's neat. So how long have you guided professionally? Well, um, since I came up to college uh, in Utah, so that would have been, well, let me think. I probably didn't actually get started guiding until about 2005 or so. So it's coming up on 15 years. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and when did you become interested in art? Well... Um, you know, these are two things that have always been in my life, uh, art and fishing. And I think when you love something as much as I love either of those, it permeates everything in your life. There was never a time that I didn't want to fish, like I already mentioned, but there was never a time that I wasn't drawing. I, I, I have what I would probably look in retrospect and, and say I had probably ADHD when I was a kid. I was never diagnosed with that. I was really smart, so I did well enough in school, even though I couldn't keep track of homework and stay focused on a lot of things. But when I was drawing, I just had a pencil in my hand, and if I was doodling, then I could pay attention to whatever. I would absorb whatever was going on around me. If my hand was moving, my eyes were on a page, and I was creating something. So it didn't matter if it was school or if it was you know, sitting through church. And even now, you know, I, I go to clinical meetings or treatment team meetings, you know, therapy meetings, and, and I still do. I'm still drawing. I'm still creating artwork even during those meetings. And it's great because all of my colleagues know that this is a coping mechanism for ADHD. It makes Tim more effective. And so, uh, so they're very supportive of it. But um, I, like I said, when you have two things like that, that, that you are very into and they're kind of immersive uh, in, in your life, they're going to grow together. So drawing fish has just been something that's, something that I've done for as long as I can remember getting started and actually trying to create art that people would want to buy. That probably didn't start until, Oh, I'd say around the time I started guiding probably 2005. But, um, you know, even before that, when I was a little kid that, you know, my sensei, my original fly fishing instructor, Eric, that neighbor, he, he worked at a fly shop and he found a, a steelhead that I had just kind of drawn and, I wasn't planning on doing anything with it, but he took it to that fly shop and it became the cover of their, you know, their Christmas catalog that they sent out. So that was kind of the first time I was like, Oh, people, people dig this. They think I'm good. So. Yeah, that's uh that's super cool. And, and so are you self-taught or did you take some formal training, uh, some part along your journey? Um, I, I, and it depends on what you mean by formal training. I, most of it is, is self-taught. The first paintings that I did, 
that I have done, well, almost all of them are, are watercolor. I've done literally, I think, one oil painting ever, and I love it. I think it's great, and I should do more of it. But in terms of watercolor, my mom painted watercolors. She never really taught me formally, but we painted together sometimes, and, and I just kind of figured out how to do it as I went along. Uh, and I think as a result of that, I don't do it necessarily the way other people paint watercolors. Some people will tell me that, that they don't look like watercolors, the, the paintings that I make. And that's probably because I'm not using all of the same techniques um, that, that is most common with that medium. I'm just kind of trying to figure it out as I go. Um, and I think that's a, well, for me, it's a great way to do it. I don't, I don't have a lot of preconceived notions when I go into the artwork and I have to kind of discover it. But that said, I took an opportunity while I was in college, you know, to take a, a beginning watercolor class. I took a beginning drawing class while I was there too. And so a lot of the fundamentals I, I learned at that point, but most of it is just kind of a, a path of discovery, um, you know, trial and error to figure out how, how to create things that I think, you know, at least to my eye look good. Very neat. In addition to your mother, who are some other folks that influenced your artwork? Um, so back in, back in the day, there weren't a lot of fishing artists per se, um, the first ones that I can remember seeing, you know, I, I was painting trout and, and, you know, as a kid and, and growing up and doing it as I started guiding. And then I saw, you know, A.D. Maddox and I saw um, Derek DeYoung. They're the first people that I can remember seeing. These are professionals that are painting the things that I love to paint um, and creating the work that I love to create. And so I would call them influences, but not so much in style or technique or just, just in the idea of this is something you can do. You know, this is something that may seem very niche and very specific but that's okay. Your art can be whatever you want it to be. So I wouldn't say that my, my artwork or my style reflects them in terms of execution. I mean, for the most part, they're working in oil and I'm working in watercolor or, you know, pyrography now. Um, but, but the influence in terms of just kind of the inspiration to go get it, to go, to go do it, you know, to try to bring it to a professional level from a, from a just for fun level, they were the inspiration in, in that respect. And now I, I look, you know, we have, all kinds of one of our artists. Um, and I'm working with a, a group right now, actually, on kind of a cool project. Uh, probably most people don't know about this, but uh, there's several artists uh, that we've kind of gotten together and, and decided we're going to paint the same image. I have this brown trout photo from here in Utah that was you know, just a beautiful fish with a little water dripping off of its chin. And it was a cool image. And I posted it on Facebook. And uh, I don't know if you know who Trevor Hawkins is. He's a great watercolor artist from Australia. He does a lot of digital artwork now, actually on his on like iPad art, and uh, and one of his fans commented on my post and said, "Hey, Trevor," and linked him and said, "You should paint this fish." And the the commenter didn't know that I'm a you know I'm an artist also. And I said, "You know, maybe I'll go ahead and paint it," you know, kind of sarcastically. And, and Trevor kind of had a laugh at that. And then I thought, you know, what? we should both paint this. And so just kind of got this idea that you know we'll take the same image, I'll paint it, Trevor will paint it. We got um, a bunch of other artists, Ryan Keen. Um, I'm going to forget people, Andrea Larco and Isno Santos, a bunch of great watercolor, uh, oil painting, all different media, everybody doing it in their own style, but of the same fish image as our, as our source, as our inspiration. And so we're going to have a bunch of different artists who have done that same thing. I think it's going to come out really cool. So uh, this is a super long answer to your question, but I guess that's a long roundabout way of saying, I think at some point, everything that you see and everything that you experience and all of the people that you come in contact with and enjoy their art will have some effect on the way that you go about your own creative process. And I'm happy to list, uh, you know, a huge pool of great fish artists nowadays, you know, whereas, uh, when we were getting started, it was, it was only a couple maybe that would have been known. 
Yeah, that's really neat. And you mentioned that, you know, watercolors are your preferred medium. How did you arrive at, at, uh, that preference? <laughs> I arrived at it because, um, my mom bought them for me for my birthday. You know? <laughs> if, she had, if she had bought me something else, I'm sure that would have been what I started with, but she was, she loved to paint with watercolors and, and you know, if you're a parent, you, you love to help your kids find things that they love in their lives. And there's no easier way to do that than to introduce them to something that you love. I mean, I'm teaching my kids how to do art and all different kinds of media. I'm teaching them how to fly fish and it makes sense to me that she introduced me to, to watercolor. The reason that I've stuck with it, I think, now that I've even done an oil painting and I want to do more oil paintings, I think it comes back a little bit to that, to that, <laughs> that innate ADHD, I can, I can go into work on a watercolor and it, and it can be finished in the time that it takes water to evaporate, which is not a lot of time. Whereas an oil painting, you put down a layer and you build it up and then you have to let that oil dry. And this is, can be a very long process and it's frustrating to me to, to have to wait. So I think, it, I think it's more conducive to that impatience that I have and burning artwork is, is even more so. I mean, it's, it's instant. It's, it's almost too instant. It's, it's really easy to make a, irreparable mistake if you're not careful but i i take the uh the risk of of permanent uh damage you know that the the intensity of that is is a fair trade-off for me to be able to have instant gratification <laughs> in my artwork rather than having to to wait for the process to develop over time very neat and if you know as you look back over your art career how do you um think your style has evolved huh. well um, I think my technical proficiency has improved as I've, like I said, it's, it's kind of been a process of self-discovery, figuring out how to do these things that I want to do in my head. Um, and so as, as I've become more, you know, technically able to do and translate what I want onto the paper, that's been its own evolution. Um, and then there's, there's things that I'll catch on to that I just get really into right now. When I say right now, because it's been years, I really like the idea of reflected light. Um, on fish. I, I like that transference of the feel of, of wetness. Um, there's nothing more disturbing to a fly fisherman, I think, than seeing a really beautiful fish that's dry, you know, that has dirt stuck on it, you know, and a, or a leaf or something like that. You know, we, we want them to be wet. We want them to be in the environment that they're from. And so I, that's, that's something that I've been very into and I'm trying to translate into my watercolors now. Um, and then there's something to be said for uh, the response that you get from others, especially if you're trying to do this art thing in a professional capacity, you get feedback from the people who, who like your art. And, and some of them are giving you that feedback in terms of dollars, which allows you to keep focusing time and effort on it. So when people give me tremendous feedback for the uh, tinny grips that I'm burning, then, then, you know, it, it, I feel compelled to do more of that. And, and, and that's great. You know, to kind of have this interactive relationship with your, with your community, with your audience, with your friends. Yeah, that's really neat. And, you know, we, we talked about kind of this intersection of, you know, fishing and art for you. Can you talk a little bit more about how that inspires you to create pieces of art and gives you ideas? Sure, sure. I, I've said to a lot of people before, um, friends and other artists, that I don't really understand a thing until I've tried to draw the thing. And then when I've drawn it, I will remember details about it. I'll remember and understand its structure and the way that it functions in ways that I wouldn't have ever discovered if I hadn't gone through the process of trying to understand it well enough to draw it and then try to draw it from memory. And then that, that shows me that I actually understand and remember this thing's structure and function. And so when I am fishing, um, 
I, I, I see fish and I look at them and I'm sure everybody admires their catch. And I don't know if I'm unique, right? I'm sure everybody has, you know, things a little bit differently, but when I see fish, I feel like I see things in it that other people might not see if they weren't looking for what I'm looking for, uh, to see what is making this fish a fish. What is, what is the same between this brown trout and another brown trout? And what is different with this one? What shocks me and stands out? So it might be just enormous pectoral fins, which I think a lot of us know. Oh, these brown trout seem to have bigger pecs than, than maybe rainbows or cutthroats or other species. But then I'll see a huge adipose fin or I'll see that little, I don't even know what it's called, the little plate that's immediately above the pectoral fin, but, you know, aft of the uh, operculum. I don't know what that thing is, but these little, these little shapes of the fish um, and the little uh, idiosyncrasies and differences between not just different species, but different subspecies and then different uh different areas like on a uh on a montana rainbow trout if you're fishing uh you know the, the bear trap section in madison they had these this little orange tip on their dorsal fit and one after the other had that little orange tip which i thought was just really cool and unique and uh and so that that my fishing experience and going to different places and catching different fish and finding the unique fish uh sticks in my mind and then it's something that i want to translate you know sooner or later to to uh, to a sheet of 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 our watercolor paper or something, you know. So. Yeah, really neat. And you mentioned earlier that you're a doodler. Is that how you develop your ideas, or do you have a more formal sketchbook process uh, to take a to take an idea for a piece and to translate it into a final product? No, I don't have a former sketchbook, uh, and I think for just that reason, because I'm such a doodler that I. Uh, if I don't have the tools on hand, all I need to do is find somebody with a pen or a pencil and grab a piece of paper. And, you know, when we talked about the, being an, an artist or at least drawing my whole life, maybe 50% of the time as a kid was just asking my mom for a pen from her purse and seeing if she could find a loose receipt or something, you know, and, and drawing on the back of it, you know, on a two inch by four inch receipt. Um, and, and to some degree, I think that continues with me. I don't have a very formal process in terms of, it's just constantly occurring. I'm just finding something to draw on and then I draw it. And I think that's kind of contributed to, to new creations. I think that contributed to developing, uh, you know, pyrography and CB grips is just another thing that I can, that I can put our work on right now. I, you know, I, I was drawing in church the other day and I was drawing a mayfly and looking at the mayfly wings and seeing the segmentation in the middle of the kind of the paneling almost of those segments and immediately felt like, you know, I have to learn how to do stained glass now because there's something about a mayfly wing that's going to be translated in stained glass. It's not going to be translated in any other way. So that's a project that's in my head that I have to do, you know? Um, so there's no, there's no formal process. There's nothing that I've set down. I think my mind is just a little too scattered to make that happen. It's a little more organic. Got it. And do you prefer to paint every day or do you kind of set aside kind of uh, periods of time where you sort of sprint uh, to create your pieces? I definitely definitely sprint, uh, because I have so much going on in my life that, you know, there may be a time when I can sacrifice some things that I love for other things that I love. Uh, that's just really hard for me to do at this point. But what that means is time is unfortunately limited. And, uh, and when I get a shot to do a painting, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopelessly backed up on commissions and things like that. And so I, I've got to, I've got to be, I, I really should, you know, set aside regular hours and this is when I'm going to do my work. But what ends up happening is I'll sit down to a painting and I'll just go, you know, 12 hours straight on it and I'll just paint until four in the morning and then come back to it again and then do another 
12 hour sprint on that thing. And that's after a day of work, you know? So, <laughs> so it's not, it's not well regulated. It's not well patterned. It's that ADHD mind again, again, sitting down to when I can get into something and then just seizing the moment and milking it for all it's worth before I have to separate myself again and, and get sidetracked. It, got it. And I know that some of your artwork it has appeared on Orvis products. Is your creative process different, you know, depending, you know, if it's a commission uh, versus something that you know is going to go on a buff or something like that? Yeah, um, definitely. Well, the first, first off, if it's a commission, then it's going to be a, not always, but usually a collaboration with the client where I'm going to be talking with them about what is the feeling that you want to have when you're looking at this painting? What is the experience that you had and how am I going to help you relive that experience? You know, how, how are we going to, you know, what stood out to you about this fish? What stood out to you about being on the, the A section of the green river with those red rocks around you and that green water, you know, whatever that is. And so that's, that's a very collaborative process to me. And I want them to be involved at least in, if not in choosing how to execute that, at least in choosing how, uh, what we're trying to communicate. Right. And so that's, that could be, you know, that could be a very, uh, not monopolated by me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and so I'm, I'm much more open when we're doing something for Orvis. The fact of the matter has been, they've not been very specific or controlling about anything that they've had for me in terms of request. What it usually has been is I'll come up with something that I think is cool. Um, sometimes I've even done it with the intent of, I think the guys at Orvis will like this. You know, I know those guys that are good friends of mine. Um, Sean Combs is, is, uh, one of the guys who's really in charge of product development. I'll be like, you know what? I, I draw, start drawing a, or, you know, doodling a, a monochrome green Drake, uh, mayfly and drawing it thinking Sean would super dig this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a stone fly and then I do it. And then I tag him on an Instagram post and, you know, put his name on there and get his attention and know that that's going to be something he's into. And, and he says, yeah, let's put that on buffs and t-shirts and, and mugs or whatever. And, Usually to this day, when I see Sean, he's got this, uh, he's got this Orvis hat on, you know, with a foam front and this black monochrome stone fly that we did several years ago. He still likes to wear that hat. It's one of his favorites. And, and, and so, um, there is a different process depending on what the end end point is going to be. Um, but I've been fortunate in that in all cases, I feel like it still come from, uh, gets to come from what I want to make, you know, what I feel like making, um, whether that's a black and white bug or if it's a multicolored, you know, watercolor painting, um, get to have that creativity. Yeah, that's neat. And in, in terms of solving artistic problems, do you have a group of artists that you like to bounce things off of, or do you just kind of prefer to grind things out on your own? Um, I guess I have to say I am more of a grinder. Um, in terms of figuring stuff out on my own. And that's probably not wise. I should be reaching out to people more. I love a lot of the artists I've gotten to know better. I've seen them at shows, developed relationships with them, and I probably should reach out more than I do. But um, part of it is probably, I don't know, a little bit of pridefulness, and I want to be able to figure things out, and I want to discover it on my own. And the other part is that uh, as much as I love collaborating with others and seeing what they do and getting influence from them indirectly, I, I do want to continue my own kind of pathway of figuring out uh, things and developing my own style. So I've always been a little bit hesitant to, you know, take a higher level class or, or learn too much from, from any one individual with the fear that 
I'd become somebody who's reliant on replicating rather than creating, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you're painting, do you prefer to work on one piece at a time or do you kind of have three or four things going uh, when you're painting? When I'm painting, I almost always work on one thing at a time. And I just go from one end to the other on it, taking as many hours as I can get and then pushing through until it's done. If I were to do more oil painting, my strategy would change because during that time when I'm waiting for it to dry, I feel like I'd have to be doing something else if I was still in that mode where I could be painting. And so having several oil paintings going on at the same time might be that solution for me. So this answer might change, you know, if you if you talk to me a year from now, but for now when it's mostly watercolor and, and burning stuff, uh, it's definitely start to finish cranking on something. Got it. And talking about burning stuff, you know, for, for folks that don't know, you know, tell us a little bit about what a Timmy grip is and tell us kind of how the idea for Timmy grip, Timmy grips came about. Sure. Um, so really started my first time ever getting to go to Alaska. Um, I have five older brothers and, uh, one of them has been a fly fisherman. He started fly fishing just shortly after I did. Um, and then I, I've got another brother who has been getting into it more and more. And this was back when he was kind of starting out. He offered to take me to Alaska, basically pay for everything to go fish uh, out of Glacier Bay on the Bartlett River, catch silver salmon. And it's going to be an awesome trip. And, and uh, you know, I really couldn't afford it at the time. And so he was so gracious. I wanted to repay him. And uh, what I did is I ended up getting him a, a fly rod identical to mine. I had the original, you know, Helios uh, fly rod, you know, nine foot eight weight. And I got him the same rod and I realized our, our rods are exactly the same, you know, how we're going to tell them apart. And, uh, I was getting ready to head out and my dad's soldering iron was out. He likes to do, you know, fidget with electrical stuff. And, and I said, you know, I could burn his name into it. And so I was, I was, you know, figured I could, you know, if you can per- personalize a, a rod blank, you might as well put their name on the cork. Yeah. I couldn't do the rod blanket. It had already been sealed, but I could, I could burn something into the cork. And then I thought, you know, my, my brother's a little bit of a, Lord of the Rings nerd. Uh, you know, he kind of liked the idea of a named sword like they have in the Lord of the Rings series, like Sting, or I don't remember the name of the other ones, but like he would probably like a named fly rod. So I asked him, I said, Dave, I said, Dave, if you, if you were going to have your, your fly rod be a named rod, what would its name be? You know, just kind of hypothetically as he's getting this new fly rod. And I can't remember what it was. He told me what it was. And, and so I said, you know, this, I, that name and I burned in the top, whatever is my name. And then I put at the bottom, I am the salmon's bane, you know, like put this little <laughs> total nerdy Lord of the Rings quote thing on there, you know, the salmon's bane. And he just thought it was so cool. And I was like, well, if I can burn words into this, I can burn anything into this. And so, so I burned a, uh, you know, a silver salmon into it. And, um, and that was, you know, kind of the first, the first Timmy grip was just, uh, just the idea of, you know, another one of those things where, if I can create art on something, then I will create art on something. And as soon as I realize that, you know, cork burns and I have a tool in my hands that can burn it, um, I'll go ahead and take this nice fire rod and, and hopefully not destroy it, hopefully make it better, but uh, just start burning art into it. And it worked out really well. And so that was, so was, I got home and did it to all my rods and, you know, made sure that I was getting better and better at it. And then realized it was pretty good and then offered it to my, to my guide buddies, you know, we all fish our rods harder than anybody. So I figured this would be a great proof of concept. If I can burn it into these and it holds up well, then we'll know it's good. And then finally, you know, two or three years, I can't remember how many after that. It's when I first offered it to, to other people as a, something I would do for their rods. I mean, there's a difference between risking art on a piece of paper versus 
risking art on a, uh, you know, somebody's $900 favorite fly rod, you know, a little, little higher stakes. So I wanted to make sure I was doing a pretty good job before I started taking that on. No, absolutely. That's a really neat story. And so if we fast forward to today, how many Timmy grips do you think you do in the average year? That is a good question. And it's a hard one to answer because it's been significantly more every year. I've at least doubled every year. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to double this year because of the project I did with Orvis last year. We made that limited edition series of Helios three rods. Um, and there were 500 of them. So I did, I did 500 grips just for Orvis last year. And that is, it's a lot of, I have a lot of time and work. So I don't know if I would even be able to beat that this year, but in terms of individual orders from people who are just sending me their rods for a commission, I have more in this January than I did probably in any individual month before. So it just keeps growing and growing. I do more, more grips than anything else combined at this point in terms of artwork. Yeah, that's really neat. And, you know, we've mentioned kind of throughout this interview, Orvis, talk to me a little bit about how um, that relationship started. Sure. Um, So I was a guide here in Utah. And and shortly after I started, I started guiding me. I mentioned Grant Bench. Um, He got me in contact with Spencer Higa, who, if you've heard of Higa's SOS, uh, he's the creator of that fly. And he was the head guide at Falcon's Ledge here in Utah. And uh, you know, they brought me out for, if you'll indulge a little, a little guide story, I'll tell you my, my first trip yeah, out of ab- Falcon's Ledge. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, is that all right? Yeah. So I, I go out to Falcon's Ledge, you know, Spencer knew me. They, they took me out fishing. It almost seemed like kind of a tryout to see if can this guy really fish. And we hit some of the great rivers out there on the south slope of the Uinas that they guide and fished to still water. And I caught this giant tiger trout and did, did well enough that they felt like, okay, we'll bring him in. We can, we can give him a shot. And, we had this, uh, this big corporate group where each of us had two clients for the day and we're just fishing the still waters, the private still waters there on the property of Falcon's legend. And my two guys, I was going to work so hard for them. You know, I was like, I was just going to make sure they caught big fish and, and, and they both did, they both caught fish over 20 inches before lunch. And, uh, and so I just felt awesome. You know, I was like, Oh, they did great. And, and everybody else decided they were done after lunch, except for my two guys, you know, who caught these 20 inches. I'm like, Oh, sweet. You know, I totally proved myself. And, so as we're fishing after lunch, uh, my buddy Grant said, hey, Tim, you take one of them and I'll take the other. And we'll just guide them one-on-one. I was like, oh, that sounds great. So we go up to this pond and they're catching a lot of fish and they start having a competition with each other, right? You know, they're keeping track of numbers. And and, uh, and so, I, you know, I want to help my guy win. So I rig up a second rod. You know, he's fishing a chronometer under an indicator. So I rig up a rod with a streamer and want to switch off or, or maybe it was vice versa. I can't remember, but I go to hand him the other rod and he says, Oh no, Tim, I don't want to fish with your rod. And I said, no, it's fine. Please make no, no, I only want to catch fish on my rod. I'm like, well, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. So I set it over against this bush and he's like, but you fish it, Tim, you fish it. I was like, Oh no, I can't do that. And he said, Oh, go ahead. And I'm like, no, no, no. Anyway, Grant's client convinces him to start fishing. And when every fish that Grant catches, he counts toward his total. And so my client's like, well, now my buddy's going to beat me because this guy's doing what he's asking him to do. You want you know, pick up that rod and fish. So I did finally, you know, I throw in. And of course, the first fish I hook is like a 23 or 24 inch fish. And I just land it as fast as I can and unhook it and, you know, send it back in the water. And, and everybody's like, oh, well, that, was, that was a big fish, you know, and I'm super embarrassed. So I just go over at the inlet where I know there's a bunch of little brook trout and catch like a ton of little brook trout just to get his numbers up. And then I break off my fly and just fake like I'm fishing after that. Right? And uh, when I'm walking by the guide shop afterwards, you know, the pro shop, I hear them in there talking to Spencer, the head guide, you know, after my first day of guiding. And what I hear is, Oh yeah, it was a great day. 
of course, Tim caught the biggest fish, and I see Spencer look over at me, passing the door, and I'm just like, ah, like, I have to run and hide, and he gives me the head shake, and I have to get the talking to her after that. You never fish with the clients, you know? So, that was, uh, that was my, that was my first experience guiding, and it was horribly embarrassing, but I, I redeemed myself after that. They're some of the best guides I've ever met, let alone worked with up there at Falcon's Ledge. They've been great. But that was a very long story to tell you. Falcon's Ledge is how I first got in contact with Orvis because it's an Orvis endorsed lodge. And so we had, you know, Tom Rosenbauer and some of the Orvis crew, you know, Sean Brillian when he was there as a product developer and uh, Tim Dotton and uh, just a bunch of those guys come out and fish with us. Um, and so we'd just guide them for a day, you know, as we're out there fishing and take them to some of our favorite spots, kind of developed relationships with them. And then, you know, then I'd see them every, every time we had the Orvis guide rendezvous. I'd make it a point just to just as kind of a friendly extension of love, but also as kind of a private joke between us. I'd always go to Tom Rosenbauer and be like, Hey Tom, you've got to sign my hat, you know? And so I'd, I'd take my Orvis endorsed guide hat, whatever they gave us that year and make him sign it. And now Tom returns the favor by making me sign a hat. If, uh, if Orvis produces one with my artwork. So there's just really good guys at that organization and, and getting to fish with somebody is the best way to get to know somebody. So, uh, having spent some time on the water helped us, you know, get to know each other and develop some relationships. And, and then, you know, uh, once you've made contact and they like your artwork, then it's, it's an easy transition to, uh, to setting up an arrangement that works for both of us. Very neat. And, you know, I all I have a similar question. I ask all of my artist guests and guide guests too, but um, I'll pick artist uh, over guide um, for you. You know, what's the biggest misconception you think folks have about artists and their art? Oh, biggest misconceptions about artists in their art. I think probably here's what I think. I'm gonna I'm gonna so you know, and maybe the listeners don't know. I do I do therapy as well. I work with kids on the autism spectrum, what we used to call Aspergers, very high functioning kids. And we have a saying uh, when we're working with kids who have Aspergers or high functioning autism. What we used to say is, if you've met one kid, you know, with Aspergers you've met one kid with Asperger's, right? <laughs> and I think the same is true with artists. It's easy for us to think that because a person is an artist, they're like this. They are this kind of person. Um, you know, they're an artsy person or whatever. The one thing artists all have in common is they have some level of creativity and they have, if we know about them, then they have the courage to share that creativity and the vulnerability to be able to share that with other people. But that's about it. Um, after that, artists are as different as anybody I've ever met in the world. And so I think the, the biggest misconception is to think because, because I know in my mind what an artist is, I can probably assume that about this person, that he's, he's like those other artists or the, the way that I envision them in my head. If that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've been lucky enough to, uh, to interview quite a few artists for the podcast and they're all very, very different. Um, and the way they approach, um, their art is very different. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so, um, so what do you do? Um, you know, you got a lot of things going on, you guide, uh, we haven't even gotten a chance to talk about your, your day jobs. Um, and, and you have your art. How do you recharge your creative batteries? Um, well, a nice thing for me is the way that I recharge one is by doing the other. Um, if I have burned out on doing therapeutic work, let's say I'm working with 
I don't get very frustrated with the, the kids that I work with. Sometimes I get frustrated with parents. Uh, but uh, if I ever get you know frustrated or burned out professionally in, in that respect, then just sitting down and painting is tremendously therapeutic. Um, and so, and, and that, that's been great for me is when I'm doing something that is recharging me and, and bringing me back, rejuvenating me. Um, it's also something that's productive to me professionally. Um, I don't ever feel like I've done too much drawing. I never get burned out on making artwork. It just hasn't happened yet. And I think part of that is because I have so much diversity going on in terms of different media, uh, different techniques, different ideas. I've, I've never been able to do all the things that I want to do and all the things that are in my mind. Um, and so there's always something else that I'm trying to get the time to do and, and you know, will eventually do. I've just never burned out on it. But when all else fails, and I mean, if everything in my life is hard and frustrating, then the one thing that is the magic the balm for all ills is just fishing. And I think everybody listening to this will, will be able to relate to that. And I don't just mean that anecdotally. I mean, I, because of what I do professionally and the research that I've done, um, I know the uh, measurable benefits of getting out on the water just to fish, just to relax, just to be in that moving water with a beta sound behind you and, and let everything go. So I, I'm blessed in terms of being able to have these things in my life be naturally good for me in terms of rejuvenating me and helping me stay sharp, stay focused and, and productive. Yeah. And what is it that you think about fly fishing that, that makes it such an effective therapeutic tool? I know you use it, uh, in your day job, but you know, what is it, you know, we, I think all of us that listen to this and all of us that fish love being outdoors and we find it soothing, but you know, what is it that you see that makes it so effective at helping people? Um, that is a really good question. And there is really good research that's going on about that. And I, if you gave me some time to, to study that, I would be able to give you a more very specific, but maybe more boring answer. Um, I mean, we know that we can measure, you know, we can take saliva samples and very, you know, measure serotonin versus cortisol levels of, of what's going on in your brain before, during and after fly fishing, see that you become more calm. Right. So we know that it happens. What, what is it that makes it happen? That's a harder question to answer. Um, I think it, a lot of it for a lot of people has to do with mindfulness. And that's the idea of just being able to be present in what you're doing now, rather than having anxiety, forecasting what you're going to have to do in the future. What am I going to have to do for work tomorrow? What's going on with my kids? And is one of them struggling in school or any of the stressors that might be in your life, but just instead being able to be standing in a river, feeling the pressure of the water on you, feeling the motion of the fly cast, smelling what is, you know, what is around you, the different plants that are blooming, uh, touching the cold water, watching that fly drift softly over the surface or, or trying to understand what's going on under the surface, you know, with a nymph. It's so engaging and it's engaging in such a peaceful way that you get all of that ben, you know, benefit of being present in the moment uh, in a way that is just comforting, you know, that is just like a big hug from nature, you know, as you're immersing yourself using all of your senses into this thing that just grounds you and connects you with earth and with your present moment, rather than focusing on all the other things that, that could be going on in your life and that, that could otherwise be, you know, kind of destroying you from the inside out. And if humans can get just a little bit of that, you know, and on a regular basis, kind of that core activity to, to rejuvenate, I think it does tremendous things for not just mental health, but, but physical health. And I think those things are, you know, inseparably connected anyway. But, uh, so I guess my answer to you is, I don't know. 
we might be able to find out eventually, but there's something. And I think it has a lot to do with that just kind of mindfulness and being present. Yeah. Well, I, I really like your answer. And I mean, a lot of that is why, certainly why I fish. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, I know that you teach at BYU and that you're a recreational therapist. Tell us a little bit about, about what that uh, looks like for you on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So in terms of day-to-day, I, I'm, I've only been an adjunct instructor. I'm not a full-time professor at the university. So just whenever they need me, um, I go in and I'll teach. It's almost always a senior level class. It's, it's, rec therapists who are getting ready to go into their 14 week internship and just start actually working with people and start doing the good work. Um, and so my focus is always on getting prepared for actually connecting with people and, and what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And more importantly, how are you going to help through the, the, the behavioral health process of connecting that to the rest of their life and the therapeutic benefit that they're trying to make? Um, rec therapy is actually a really, really broad thing and people do it in all different kinds of ways. You have rec therapists who are, you know, essentially activity directors. Uh, the way that I do it, I, I work at a, uh, a residential treatment center, a therapeutic boarding school, and we have 16 boys there. Um, and all of them have some kind of learning difference. Um, most of them are either high function on the autism spectrum or they have autism like, uh, symptoms that make learning and, and life in general more difficult for them. Uh, and so we're very focused on teaching them in the moment how to uh, how to deal with what is going on in, in more healthy ways than they have in the past. And the beauty of, of recreation therapy, the beauty of experiential therapy, Marvin, is that I could sit down with these 16 boys and I could say, today, I'm going to teach you about anxiety and your coping mechanisms for it. And I could have them all tell me their coping mechanisms. And for four of the boys or five of them, anxiety is the number one thing for them. But for another one, it's it's frustrations with nonverbal learning disorders or, you know, different things. But when we go out and we do something experientially together, um, and, and sometimes it's fly fishing or something that's nice like that. And sometimes it's something that's intentionally stressful, like rock climbing, or sometimes it's just me arbitrarily creating a challenge for them that they have to use communication and all of their skills to overcome. When they do something experiential like that for the person whose biggest problem is anxiety that is about anxiety, and that's what he's experiencing. For the person who just has huge trouble with being in close physical proximity to people, that's his biggest stressor at that moment. So for each of those 16 boys, um, they're experiencing the most important, most difficult thing for them. And when we process it afterwards, and we're talking about it afterwards and working through it afterwards, it focused specifically on what they needed to work on in a real sense to where they can say, in a, you know, in a sit-down therapy group, they could say, well, these are my, these are my strategies. These are my coping skills for dealing with anxiety. Um, and they work, but in that moment I can say, did they work? Uh, what did the other 15 people feel about how you interacted with them? And was it really working? And they're, they're getting feedback, not from me, but from their peers. And we, we make real change in a real concrete way that they can understand. And there's doing, doing therapy in an experiential way like that is just not something that I think you can replicate, uh, nearly as effectively with, with just CBT or DBT or just, just communication. I think you have to kind of get down to the nitty gritty and, and have them actually experiencing it for it to become real. I think it's really beneficial for, for certain populations. Wow. That's uh that's really special. And, you know, you've got so many things going on in your life. You're a guide, you're an artist, you're an adjunct professor, you're a recreational therapist. What's your trick for keeping it all straight? <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't keep it all straight very well to be super honest with you. <laughs> In in behavioral health, we call that skill executive functioning, uh, being able to understand your tasks, lay it all out, keep track of everything, 
And that's not something I'm naturally good at. My dad was amazing at that. He was chief of medicine at two different hospitals. He ran a, a publicly traded corporation. Eventually, he was an extremely organized and brilliant man. My mom, the watercolor artist, not so. She would not be on time anywhere. And unfortunately, I think I got a lot of her genes in terms of that organization. So really, it's just been trying to trying to overcome my natural inclination to not be organized, to just uh, try to use talent, skill, and a lot of energy to make everything work. And so far, it's it's been pretty good, but I'm sure I could be a lot better. You know, we talked a little bit about your um, your project where you're you have a group of artists all painting the same uh, subject. Are there any yeah. other are there are there any other projects that you're working on that you want to share with our listeners? Well, um, that one's going to be really cool. I think people are going to be. We talked about how different artists are. I think it's going to put that into clear focus. We all know that everybody has their own distinct style, uh, and I think this is going to make that really clear. So I'm really excited about that. By the way, I didn't mention this. The theory behind that is we'll all have our originals that we get to keep, and we're all going to get uh, a copy or one print of each other's uh, image. Um, it's going to be a very limited edition. I think we're making only 20 prints of each of these. And then we're each going to get a full set of prints that we're going to donate to a charity, that we're going to give to an auction or something like that to benefit something. Um, and so that's really cool because there'll be uh, there's going to be a lot of inherent value in that you know, limited edition of 20 uh, and then have these different images from these different artists. So um, I'm very excited about that. Um, I just, I don't know what I can say. I mean, there's some stuff that I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about yet. Uh, uh, well, Let well, me tell you something that's, that's not certain at all. Uh, I, I just had an email exchange with, with, with Sean from Orvis, who loves the grip uh, collaboration we did on those Helios three rods. I love it. We both think it's you know a project that we're very very proud of. And right now I'm just trying to uh, to tantalize him with with a little derivation of that same kind of idea that I, I won't mention specifically. But uh, I'm I'm hopeful that he's uh, going to be sufficiently uh, tantalized that we might have something else coming out via or this year in the future. Uh, maybe maybe we'll have some decisions made about that when I get out to the uh, to the expo uh, in uh, in South Carolina next month. We'll have to see. Uh, very neat. Well, that means, folks, you got to watch your Orvis catalogs to uh, to see if it uh, if it comes into being. And you mentioned the expo. Why don't you tell folks a little bit more about that and when it is and what you'll be doing there? Sure. I mean, you uh, you probably know more about this than I did. I'm a I'm a first timer out here, but it's the Southeastern Wildlife Expo in Charleston, South Carolina, and I've never been. But everybody I've talked to has said it's a, an amazing event where it's not it's not just one you know conference hall. It's kind of spread out from what I understand and, and there's different venues and, and it's, uh, you know, very wildlife centric, obviously, but from what I've heard also very art centric. So it's a, it's a natural fit for me and the good people at Orvis are, uh, on their dime are, are flying me out to, to spend time there, be in the booth. I'll probably be creating some artwork and burning in there and, uh, and just kind of get into contact and connect with, with people who love wildlife, love art, uh, love fly fishing. So I'll, yeah, I'll be down there in the, in the Orvis booth, I'm not exactly sure even even where that will be, but somewhere in Charleston at the, uh, the Southeastern Wildlife Expo. Yeah, yeah, and it's always President's uh, Day weekend, and I'll drop a link uh, to the event in the show notes so people can find out more information. Um, and before I let you go tonight, um, can you let us know where we can find you on the internet and see more of your work? Sure. Um, I've tried to brand it as Tim Johnson Gallery in all places, so timjohnsongallery.com is my website where you can buy prints uh, of artwork I've done. You can 
order gift certificates for Timmy Grips. If you want to give that gift to somebody else to get artwork done on their rod or otherwise connect with me to get that artwork done. Um, and then on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Tim Johnson Gallery. Um, and I'm just, you know, almost every day posting something in terms of uh, new artwork that I'm creating or, you know, the, the latest grip that I just finished. Or uh, right now I've got a, I don't know if you've ever heard of the program Trout in the Classroom, uh, but the Utah Department of Wildlife Resources has given me 150 fertilized rainbow trout eggs. And I have this uh, 70-gallon uh, aquarium at our school now that I'm managing. And we've got a, a chiller attached to it and filters and are breeding these little fish. And right now they're almost an inch and a half long. You know, they're hatched and we're growing them. And then eventually uh, my students will, you know, who are raising them will uh, will decide, you know, ecologically speaking, where would be the best place to stock them. And, and so I'm posting some stuff on, uh, you know, kind of following that along. Got my little trout babies that people on Instagram and Facebook are following along the adventure. With me, so it's been pretty fun. Yeah, Trout in the Classroom is a great program to uh, to help kids, you know, learn uh, not just about the trout, but about the broader ecosystem as well. And, you know, I've seen I've seen so many pictures. I mean, those kids are so happy when they go out on release day and release their trout into a stream. <laughs> you know, I've got I've got these little uh, my guys are older than what typically Trout in the Classroom is designed for. They have curriculum that's designed for elementary age kids, but the project itself is amazing. And you, and you can take that science up to whatever level you want to. Uh, and that's why it's perfect for my guys, because they're all different levels in terms of their scientific ability. So for some of them, it's very basic and kind of, you know, just getting the connection with biology. But I've got one who's kind of one of my main guys in charge of it. He, you know, understanding from literally the chemistry perspective, the breakdown of the food, you know, to ammonia, to nitrite and nitrate and the, the whole process of that and, and how the bacteria are going to affect that. And he's, he's, he's my manager. He goes and does the, you know, the chemical testing on the water. And when I come into work, I've got my three vials to show me pH and, and, uh, nitrite and, uh, and, uh, ammonia level. And then he's got his little whiteboard where he's written down, you know, exactly what's going on and how much food has been given to the fish and his calculations on it. It is an awesome program and, and it's awesome for any age, but it's probably, best designed for that elementary school age so if, yeah if anybody out there is has a connection to a to a school it's definitely something they should look into so get in contact with uh trout in the classroom.org is the website or trout unlimited has been sponsoring it all over the place so you can get in contact with trout unlimited people and see if they'll sponsor you for your school yeah absolutely and i'll drop a link uh to to all that stuff in the show notes too and you know tim i really i know you're super busy i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me this evening my pleasure, Marvin. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Again, that event will be held on March 21st and 22nd in Plano, Texas. Remember to check out our event page or www.txflyfishingfestival.org for all the details. And folks, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend and leave us a review in iTunes. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.